One of my oldest projects just got approvals. That took seven years. That's seven years of pain, of not having enough money, going to the wrong civil engineers, getting taken advantage of. I mean, I'm going to write a book just on that. You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. We are here with Osman Adamir, the founder of Aspect Contracting, Olive Tree Management, and Mayus Properties. Osman, thanks for coming on the show. For someone who doesn't know what you do, how do you describe your businesses? Uh, um, first of all, thank you for having me. I, I feel privileged, and uh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, I Contracting is what we started off with, and thinking about where I wanted to lead the business into and evolved into this whole business plan in my head where I'm going to eventually get my contracting company to build my own buildings. And then I also needed a management company to manage uh, properties. I also wanted to manage other assets. Um, I got them being an immigrant, first generation immigrant, we're familiar with taxi businesses. So there was a whole bunch of other businesses that came about in my past. I was involved in the taxi business before Uber. Um, and that was also purchased and owned by and operated by the management company. So it kind of evolved into this mini entrepreneurial thing. I'm still sticking to the same game plan. It is uh, real estate and construction mainly. And uh, hopefully we'll get, we'll get there. We're almost there. So what did you originally go to school for? International business management. Was that in the States? or In, in the States. I came to the States when I was 14 years old in 1990. And uh, I went to a bunch of schools. Uh, I had soccer. I'm a decent. I'm a decent soccer player. I had soccer scholarships offered. I didn't have a green card. So by the time I got my green card, I was a junior in college, uh, and nobody was offering scholarships. So I only went to wherever I could afford. SUNY Binghamton. I went for one year. Didn't like the town. The school was great. I great education. And then I went back to New York City and graduated from one of those schools that advertise on TV. It's one of those colleges, yeah, Berkeley College. If you ever heard of them, I like them too. That was a good. That was that was a good place. How that, old were you when you came to the states? Fourteen. Okay. Fourteen, and then so I uh, I finished high school here, and I finished uh, university with bachelor's, and by two thousand I graduated. So it took about six years to graduate school, hopping around, not knowing what you really want to do. I went to Binghamton. Uh, as a matter of fact. I love cars, so I wanted to look into mechanical engineering. I, I, I love the idea of reading about engines and how it operates and everything. But my God, man, I, I failed physics 101, <laughs> the only class I ever failed in my life. I'm like, how many more physics classes you need to be an engineer? Uh, let's concentrate on something else. And then I always had this vision that I would be working for an international corporation. That's why I wanted an international backing to the ba uh, business administration, which pretty much says something where they prepare you on learning how other cultures operate if you find yourself being sent to a different country. So that was business administration and management, plus they taught you how to find clues on a new culture that you can find yourself on, which is paid dividend years later. What, Even kind though, of, uh, yeah. what kind of things do they prepare you to look for? Uh, taboos, understanding the relationships between how men and women, uh, between, you know, your peers in, in, in companies, certain hand gestures. They didn't teach you everywhere. They, asked, they taught you how to look for them and where to find them so you can educate yourself after you get there because it's impossible to teach every single country's, you know, taboos and all that. So, which was kind of interesting. It made it. You know, I always thought I was going to be one of those corporate, international corporate managers somewhere, working in Singapore and then being transferred to Hamburg and you know Johannesburg next or something like that. Never went that route. What inspired you to go into business? Did you have like a mentor or someone who kind of led you into that, or was that? <sighs> it's a combination of a couple of things. I was a very, very angry teenager in high school. I'm sure, you know, you know, many of us are. Um, I, I, my anger came mainly because of what I saw in society, what I considered to be injustices. I didn't like how people were getting treated at workspaces. I didn't like how people were getting treated in government, outside government, veterans, oh my God, veterans. 
So there, um, I, I grew aware of those things that jumped at me, that bothered me soon. And sooner or later, it's, I realized it was, being, it was dawning on me that I had to own my own business because there I get to make the rules. I get to treat the people the way I want. Very much punk rock, <laughs> which I was, and punk rock and heavy metal I grew up with because they really opened up an avenue for me to deal with my anger. I never got into drugs. I was never a big drinker. Uh, but the idea was you had to, you know, you remember being in high school, guys. It's not easy. But instead of going into those paths, I, the, the, the music became my backbone and sanctuary. To this day, the spirit is very much alive. The punk rock, the punk is still in me because I get to make the rules. And you know what's beautiful now? It's working. It's working beautifully. I, I, I can't ask for more. I'm blessed in that sense. Whatever I thought was right, should be right, is working. But so you realized that, you wanted to go into business. What led you into the business of building houses? Oh, my goodness. Uh, September 11, I was in New York City. I was an assistant manager at a software firm at the um, company collapsed. Uh, actually, the economy alone, you know, the entire New York economy collapsed. And back then, unemployment wasn't this forever ride. <laughs> Stay on as long as you like. They, they gave you six months and they gave you a three-month extension. So now you're coming to the last couple of months. I didn't have much in New York City, but I was living on, in, my, you know, in, in my own apartment. I didn't have roommates. So you're looking at not being able to pay the rent. And then I had this family friend of mine who passed away. Uh, I lost him to colon cancer. He was a much older gentleman. He said, come down to, you know, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. We'll start a painting company. I go, what do I know about painting? He goes, don't worry about that. You know, uh, I'll deal with the crew. You'll run the company. And that's how we started. So we started in painting. 2003, I moved to Philadelphia. And then um, from, from uh, painting, we went into general contracting. From general contracting, we, we started in building homes, uh, single homes. I've done plenty of house flips. And um, right now I'm just becoming a developer of projects of I don't know, townhouses, single homes. That's was, where I'm at in the business. Was it just the two of you or did you have other people working with you? Uh, no, we always had a crew. We always had at least two, three people who he, who he dealt with. By, by 2005, we were 25 people. And five-van operation, it was, I, it was working beautifully. Biggest problem in, the, uh, in that sector, sector, I should say, they don't pay. They just don't pay. I, I'm, once again, I can't wait till I become a developer where I control the money so I can pay the people who actually do the work. So I Because <laughs> I'm coming from being those guys 20 years ago. They just don't pay. They don't pay. You send them a $10,000 invoice, they pay you $6,000, which is a pre-calculated amount for you to just pay your guys, stay alive, surrender the profits. It's a control mechanism. It's sad. And I, and I still hear stories that it's very much alive today. And I've left new construction for those reasons many years ago. Now I'm coming into new construction where I'm in a different position. So when you started running the painting, the painting business was first, and you were asked to be the, the manager of the business side of things, did you have business management experience, or was that something you had to develop as you, kind of as you went? Both. Um, I had some, I was an assistant manager with the corporate world. So I knew we had to get licensed. I knew we had to, you know, uh, do a, set up a proper company. You can tell the term in construction is chuck with a truck. Anybody that throws a ladder on top of their roof considers themselves a contractor. You, you know, I knew I had to stand away from those people, not compete against them. So there was basics that I went to school for. So what they did, came in handy. What did you do to separate yourself from the chucks with the truck? Uh, um, get licensed, get insured, learn the regulations, make sure, you know, what jobs to stay away from. How, you know, how do you carry certain jobs? Um, you stop competing, and I learned very quickly uh, not to bottom feed where you're competing against everybody that's, so, yeah, but it, it was painful still because it's a different sector. You're not dealing with professionals. So it has its challenges. Construction has its challenges. So how did you go about getting your business in at that stage? Uh, like new business. You, new business? Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, everybody starts with the same hope. Uh, everybody wants contiguous business. 
the more they'll marry. Well, <laughs> especially in construction, if there is continuous business, there's headaches. You either work for less money or they promise you contiguous work and then they don't pay or, or um, how should I say, there's, there's, there's always problems. So you start realizing, okay, I need to make a pot of different kind of jobs put in here. So I try to go to the general contractors where I'm the painter and this general contractor builds 10 houses a year. Having been burned in the new construction industry where we were painting 25 houses a week, we left that. So I said, I need to go into higher residential market. How do I do that? Through networking, a friend of mine knew another friend, another one knew another friend. And I'm, I'm a spiritual person, and it, when I look back, you can see where God helps. So there was a supervisor who was working for one of these companies that didn't pay me. He felt bad. He goes, look, I work, I do side jobs for another uh, general contractor. Next thing you know, we were painting high-end residential houses. So um, when you're saying you're you're doing networking, did you join any networking groups, or did you have a process to your networking? Uh, not initially. Because I didn't know about them at the time. I learned about them 10 years in. And then once I found out, that, oh my God, that's been detrimental to the success of the company. So what did it look like when you were networking at this time? It's BNIs. It's, uh, I was the painter one at that time. There's a, a plumber, there's an electrician, there's a real estate person, there's an attorney. Everybody tends, they tend to be either decision makers or business owners or salespeople of company. And you get together, you eat some sort of breakfast or lunch. Okay, you did join a BNI yeah, group. That yeah. Was... Oh my God. Yeah. That that was that 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 kind of changed my contracting world around. And then around that time, we start to shift into general contracting work. So I, I still have a painting company, and we do renovations now, along with that. And that renovation work kind of started right around that networking years, about ten years ago. Yeah, so can you just explain the whole general contracting world, how that breaks down for people who may not be familiar with the industry? I know it's a very vague term that Ugh, very vague to cover a lot of things. Uh, there are a couple of... The easiest way I, I can simplify general contractors are there are people who can do the renovations and they can build a single home, they can build an addition for you, they can do a renovation of, you know, refinishing of your house, or you could finish a basement. Um, they usually do, you know... 50 to 60% of the work themselves, if they're a small company, uh, they'll do the framing themselves, they'll do the insulation, drywall themselves, they'll bring in an electrician who's licensed, they'll bring in a subcontractor like a plumber and an HVAC person for the rest of the work. So there's those kind of contractors. And then there's a, um, a set where it's kind of falls into construction management company, that's what I am today, where I don't have any physical laborers, everybody is a subcontractor. The only people that work for me directly are the project managers. So we don't have anybody that works for us that swings a hammer. But we manage the subcontractors. So that is a different sector in as a general contracting company, but we manage bigger projects and multiple ones at once. And what was the thought process behind shifting into that style of manage, project management versus our crew does everything? I have to be ready to be a developer who hires his own contracting company to build them. That's probably the number one reason. So it's been going on for about three years now, uh, and we're full-fledged ready. The, the projects are coming in, the approvals start to come in, and um, we're closing on another property in 90 days, a uh, couple of hundred units, apartments, so it's coming. So can you describe for us some of the major differences between being a general contractor and and being a property developer. So it's really like the idea starts with you, correct? Developer gets the actual plans developed and approved at, at a township level. And then they turn around and hire a builder. A builder is a m bigger general contracting company. And they're the ones that physically build based on what the plans that were showed and shown to and approved by the township. So as the developer, you're spending a lot of your time going back and forth with townships, making sure um, things are up to code, the, that kind of thing? The things being up to code comes in after the building stage. So the approval stage is early, but code still applies to the approvals. You know, if you're too close to water, you can't build them. Well, that's still code. 
So mm. to answer you, there are some code issues there. Major code issues come in after the building where they'll come and inspect the framing. They'll come and inspect the you know foundation before you pour concrete. They have, you have, they have to see the trench you dug and how deep it's going to be, that kind of thing. So there's a lot more code issues at that level than at the development level. Development level, they want to make sure there's enough parking for whatever you're proposing. They want to make sure you have sprinklers or a hydrant. Or fire trucks can come in and go out of your parking lot. Those, kind, those are still code. So you have a point. And are there any um, development projects that you can talk about now that you have in the works? Uh, yes, I am concentrating on um, the lower end of the market. I have a feeling that a lot of the developers are going after luxury, 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 luxury. I'm trying to concentrate on, um, I don't know, how, how do I stereotype this without, I it, try to picture uh, uh, some uh, a couple and one of them's in the teacher and one of them works at a Walmart. So they combine making fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, and I want to turn those people into a homeowner. Right. So focusing on the affordable housing sector. Uh, but I, my heart is at turning them into go, uh, homeowners. A lot of people to this day don't know that they can afford to buy. Mm -hmm. Millennials are catching on. Oh wait, wait a minute. Our parents weren't as stupid as we thought they were. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? Millennials are driving the real estate market today because they realize. This system in the United States work, starts working for you really once you start owning a home. And I know that's especially difficult being here in Chester County. It's a very wealthy county. A lot of the homes that are available are, you know, half a million dollars and up. Um, so it definitely seems we've been hearing from a lot of different industries. That's like an underserved part of the community. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's public back, public pushback issues. Everybody loves those kind of affordable well when you say affordable housing initial thing that comes to mind is section 8 housing where people are you know getting government subsidy i'm interested in that as well but the way the market is the way the financing world around that is shaping up where we're leaning more towards considering mixed rentals at some stage where a certain section of the building would be subsidized and the idea is to not concentrate poverty rather than trying to have people with subsidy living in higher standard buildings together with people who can afford no subsidy. So why as a business owner are you focusing in on that segment? I mean, wouldn't there be more money to be made in the luxury side? Uh, that's the um, philanthropy in my business. I want to help people. So that's, that doesn't veer into the fighting for like the bottom feeder jobs? This is almost... Uh, unserved part of the market. Okay, the, the bottom feeder jobs as a contractor is this. Let's say you go into somebody who's looking to have this room painted. Well, I'm a general contracting company. I have overhead. So when you start competing with a chuck with a truck who's going to physically pick up a brush and paint, you're not going to, who doesn't have insurance, who doesn't have overhead, does the workers' compensation, they couldn't care about any of those. Well, his price is going to be, let's say, $100, and my price is going to come in at $250. When you look at your schedule, you say, oh, my goodness, $100 is better than $250. Then you start attacking the $100 market. That's bottom feeding because a $100 customer and a $100 job has its own issues to deal with, and it usually doesn't turn out any kind of a benefit for a company like me. So that's bottom feeding. To take that concept to take that name and apply it to this it kind of doesn't work i'm trying to help people i am willing to make less money per each house in order for me to turn more people into homeowners because money isn't the only thing that makes me happy that actually makes me a lot more happier than the money and also having been exposed to the people with a lot more money than i probably will ever have i can easily tell you this whether you're making $2 million a year or $10 million a year, they're still driving the same cars, living in same, you know, same size houses, vacationing at the same spots and eating at the same restaurants. I'd rather be the guy who has $2 million and be happy that I was able to help 100 families before I die, <laughs> God willing, and I turned them into homeowners because I know once you become a homeowner, you start thinking differently. The, 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 taxing, the taxation works for you differently. You start looking to life differently. And because I'm the first generation immigrant, I'm, in that sense, I'm the American dream. You guys are looking at it. It's still very much alive. 
So um, for somebody else who has a contracting business, how would you recommend they draw that distinction between jobs that are priced too low for them? Um, and like, how do you know what's too low for you or what's appropriate for the size of your business? I recommend a decent business outlook that re that turns into a plan, a business plan. So if you're doing this as a supplemental job to your other job, then stay where you are. Then you know, go get the $100 paint jobs and don't get an overhead, you know, hire, a, bring a friend of yours to help you out. If you're going to do this full time, then you need to make a determination. What's the market am I going after? Do I want to be a million dollar grossing company? Do I want to be a $100,000 grossing company? Sorry. Do you want to be a $5 million grossing company and so on and so forth? Once you set those rules and expectations on your business plan, then you take that back to today. Well, if that's the case, how do I get to a million dollar gross sales? How many rooms at $100 a pop can I paint to reach to 100? You know, there isn't enough calendar days. Then what do you do? So all of a sudden, the road becomes clearer and clearer and clearer on what you really need to do, who your target market is. So there's a lot of analysis that goes on. Unfortunately, not many general contractors do that. Not in the market. There's a lot of professional companies who do. And then there's a whole bunch of guys who just go, you know, let the let the wind take them where it may. Is that calculating and projecting something you've always done or something you kind of learned as you started with all the smaller businesses leading to now? Um, we started back in 2003 in painting. I knew this, that I had to get first-hand jobs. So when I started in painting, Tom was the person who got the contract from the builder. Tom subbed the work out to Mary and Mary was selling the jobs to me. I was third-hand. So I knew the numbers were a lot higher than what they were paying me. So I had to get, I had to figure out a way to get to the first person so that I can get it firsthand. And that took about six months. I was fortunate. And that was a calculated method to get there. What was your strategy to get there? Uh, uh, <laughs> smaller version of networking, calling people. And I set up my company even back then to this day. I, I never held a brush, even though we were painting. So my job was to meet you and you and you and you and go have lunch, dinner. Let's get to know one another. If there's anything you can do for me, I'll do for you. Hey, great. And that paid immensely. But that's a luxury to have because I had a luxury of having my business partner physically stay at the job site. So, but that being said, we have to feed both of us. You can understand where you're starting at the business. So listen, there's nothing easy. So, but that's the path we took. That's the path we chose. My job was to get business and run the company. And we stuck to that. It worked. You said you were picking up the phone and calling people. Uh, are you talking about cold calls? Cold calls I never did. I don't think ever. But it was more like, hey, you know, you would give me your friend's name and number and say, hey, he's looking for a paint job. Go call him. Tell him I called you. That kind of phone calls. I Referral phone calls. And by the way, that if I can talk any one of you who's listening into that, that's the way to do this. Cold calls, especially in contracting. Oh my God, no. No, you you don't want that customer, let alone even if you get the job. So what is your strategy to get those referrals? Uh, build the relationships. Uh, humanity in general is very short-sighted. Um, my success today is those built relationships referring me constantly to my uh, customer base. And more than half of the jobs that I go to give estimates, the homeowner is not even asking for any other numbers from another contractor. The referring person already sold me. They know they're going to get a fair price. That takes years to establish years of paying out of pocket just to keep your word the years of not stepping on other you know uh service calls you're finished the customer paid you in full three months later she calls you still go and many people don't because why i got paid uh, you know it's gonna cost me money well it costs you money today but you're also shooting yourself in the foot in the long in the long run so it sounds like you're describing a list of principles that you abide by in your business. Very ethical um, in that sense. Yeah. Can you tell me about some of the principles you hold to? 
Uh, integrity, honesty. Uh, my con my contracting company is called Aspect because I realized that my I have to put myself in the homeowners or whoever's giving me the job's position and look at myself through those eyes. So in that sense, every job I go to has a different aspect. So let's say, let's say painting. If you're the landlord and you're hiring me to give you a painting estimate in this house, my first question is, is this a tenant scenario? You say, yes. Okay, good. So here's what goes on in my head. As a landlord, this person has one month of security in, in reserve from the previous tenant that left. So let's try to see if we can paint this place where we can keep the prices and the estimate below that escrow amount. Is that possible? If it's not possible, try to minimize the damage to the landlord. So that's one aspect of painting. So now I'm talking to you as a landlord saying, hey, look, this door in this room looks good. Let's skip it. This trim looks good. Let's skip it. Ceiling here looks good. Let's skip it. Oh, my God, they destroyed this room. We got to paint this. So that's one approach. Always look out for the benefit of the customer and put yourself there because you'll be a customer one day yourself when you'll be hiring it. So you want it to, that's where the whole, you know, approach comes into. And then how should I say, uh, let's say you're selling this house and then you, you call me in to paint or to do bathrooms and, and, or, you know, somebody was telling me they, they, they want to sell the house and they wanted me to build a sunroom and I talked them out of it. I said, you're selling the house. A sunroom is not going to make you appraisal value go up. Why are you doing it? Well, I think it's going to be great sale. No. Did you talk to your realtor? Well, you know, let's get the realtor on the phone. She did. The realtor goes, he's right. Don't spend the money. <laughs> <laughs> so I took myself out of work, but I don't want that kind of work. I want to do what's right for the customer. So that's another approach to all of this. And then sometimes people are thinking about, I don't know, a, um, a renovation, and I say, look, I know this is going to be above your budget, but if we really expand this bathroom a little bit more, you're really going to get the value for it. And then I, in, those sense, in, in that sense, I'm talking them into a little bit more money, but the intention is always the same. What benefits the customer more? So it goes both ways. If you yeah. establish the, the trust of the customer, then they'll listen to you whether your recommendation is to scale up or down yeah, the project. Yeah, absolutely. And let me openly, clearly tell you this. I am not the best contractor. I'm not the best builder. I am, a, yeah, but I will never burn anybody. Um, if you're not happy with the work that we've done, we will always make it right. If you ha don't like this subcontractor I brought in, they'll be removed and another one will come in. Um, so, I mean, it happens. Sometimes the customers are the problem. Sometimes it's the subcontractors. This is just dealing with human, human, you know, humanity on every, <laughs> every level throughout every day. So what does the corporate structure of your businesses look like? Like how many people actually work in your businesses? We, we can talk about Aspect, Olive Tree, and Mayest. Um, Mayest and Olive Tree are, um, mainly with two people underneath them. Contracting, I have uh, three assistants, a project manager, and a business manager. And, yeah, so how does the, like, workload of all that get brought? I guess you're kind of the, the CEO of everything? Uh, yes, um, but uh, the management company is not as active. Contracting company and development company is very active these days. And into the future, the way it looks like, most of my energy will go into the development company and then... Um, I will still be involved in the contracting side of it, but once we eliminate the public from the equation, I don't think I need to be that much involved in contracting other than making sure that we're sticking to the you know, uh, construction schedules that we put forward. Do you have plans to grow these organizations? Uh, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I always felt should be done is I'm looking into profit sharing and... I want the people who are involved in my contracting company to also benefit for them helping me on my development side. Uh, my smaller subcontractors and I have been together for about uh, 10 years right now. Moving into the future, I want to kind of grow a side of development into renovating apartment buildings. 
they by themselves don't have enough money to get into real estate by themselves with their own budgets i should say uh, but i'm trying to set up something where <clears throat> um 10 subcontractors that know me put money into a, a, a ball of you know into an account where we can buy a building and i'll bring in the construction cost and we can partner up the idea is to turn them into landlords so that because a lot of contractors they, they don't have 401ks they don't have any residual income expectations they just so the idea is to set them up for retirement so it's not my business plan it's not just about me in that sense i do want to bring those people up too would that be kind of like a perk within your business or is that like a separate business idea both both the people who are going to be physically involved in the contracting world uh in the contracting company i should say yes i i'm i i haven't done profit sharing with that but i do need advisors on that how do we set this up it's kind of certain things are obvious they you know they'll be involved as long as they stay involved they'll continue to get you know profits but some development projects i'm looking into uh, giving a small portion back as a thank you uh, as an appreciative token and uh, if it's going to be a long-term hold maybe um these are ideas maybe you know on a 200 apartment unit complex where i'm the landlord i don't have a problem giving one or two units to the people who have helped me get there that's a really cool idea. I haven't heard anybody else do something like that. Yes, I'm an them. idiot. Yes, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I, I, I want to help people. To me, I um, spirituality is a big, big, big part of my um, business plan. And it's working. It's It's beautiful. It's painful at certain aspects, but overall, when I sit back and look at it, it's just absolutely beautiful. And what would you say are the benefits of incorporating those spiritual beliefs into your everyday business plan? Happiness. My conversation with my 13-year-old daughter, I said, look, you know, look around you. Every human is chasing one thing. She goes, what is it? What is it? <laughs> I go, long-lasting happiness. And most of us are chasing it in the wrong things. And this is one way I, I love giving back. And I can stand in front of you and tell you it has paid in fold. And it continues to do so. It's beautiful. And it's not luck. Absolutely not. Too many times it has happened to me already where you reach point of desperation and the unexpected happens. You got a story there to share? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how many. <laughs> how long is this program? <laughs> <laughs> as long as it needs to be. <laughs> uh, oh, jeez. Um, the one that I can give. The least expected people have come forth and have helped me. The, 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 the least you wouldn't even dream of, think of. They're, they're a part of your world, but, you know, you wouldn't expect that person to... Uh, one of them called me and said, you don't sound like yourself today. What's going on? I, I said, how much time do you have? He goes, I actually can listen. So I, 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 I'm like, okay, fine. So this is the dilemma I have. He goes, come over here. I dropped everything, ran over. It was money I needed at the time. And he goes, here. Hmm. One and a half hours. From the person that you least expected, a phone call coming in out of nowhere. That's just one. I have many. And I've been fortunate enough to be in that position to other people too. I had a kid that worked for me. Um, he lived in North Philly. I'll never forget. He calls me crying. Oh my God, Oz, what's going on? I, I, I said, what's up, man? What's going on? What's going on? What happened? Because North Philly, did somebody get shot? What happened? Like, he's really crying. He goes, I'm buying a house tomorrow. <laughs> I go... Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Why are you crying? Because I'm short money. I'm like, oh crap. He's gonna say five thousand, ten thousand. I don't know what. He tells me he's short eight hundred dollars. I said, that's what you're crying for. He goes, I don't know where to go. I said, come, I'll give you the money. He goes, really? You would? I, I said. He goes, how am I gonna pay you back? I said, I don't care. Just come. We'll work it out. Doesn't matter. He was in my house 30 minutes after that phone call. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's cyclical. Don't forget that. 
today you're the beneficiary tomorrow you know you're, you're the person who who is the benefiter I want to talk a little bit about your daily approach to management of all the different businesses so you're the head of all three of these and there's other ones we're not talking about today mm-hmm. what does your day look like and what is kind of your day-to-day goals and objectives and how do you achieve them to run and manage all these because there's so many things we haven't even talked about all the accounting all the different yeah. assets of business that sounds like you're for the most part running by yourself uh how do you manage all those different pieces and delegation um uh, professionals uh, and my day is kind of <laughs> that's my day you know but i love it not one day is the same as the next even though i could go to the same desk at the same office three days in a row sit there eight hours a day doesn't matter the, the, the day is now look i'm here with you gentlemen today uh, i love my life in that sense but to go back to answering your question delegation delegation and a lot of people in business have hard time finding people that are trustworthy um, this is where my spirituality comes in as well i can tell you this if you seek the worst in people god will only send you the people that are going to cause you those kind of problems if you come with clean heart and an open heart and you seek the better side of people god will send you people that are good worthy and trustworthy and you don't even have to worry about it it gets done are they perfect no but at least when they make a mistake you know they didn't mean to they weren't trying to steal they weren't trying to weasel out they're good people they just happen to make a mistake and guess what so do i make mistakes everybody does and um when you approach it that way you get good people time and time and time and time again you you get good people i can you know think about it i'm in contracting and i'm telling you that <laughs> now does that mean is it everybody that comes to you that are good people no but on the other hand overall yes and the few that do come your way that it, that has alternate motives let's call them they talk themselves off the table they they disappear out of my life i don't need to do anything they just misbehave themselves they they, they whatever it is that they do they 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 disappear so talking about delegation which job responsibilities have you chosen to delegate out and which ones do you keep in-house or or which ones do you think are most important for you personally to do um project managers on physical daily daily operations i am the absolute last resort if they have problems with the customer i don't know i i sorry about that um i usually am called into a job site to put out that kind of a fire where there's just an absolute breakdown between us and the homeowner or something um that's one so project managers business manager uh my business manager deals with finances legalities permit applications making sure the subcontractors have right certificates of insurances uh the bookkeeping aspect the legal aspect is um delegated to because i don't need to write every single contract you know you hire an external company for that um and um, <clears throat> the one the stuff that i do on contracting is usually the sales i usually go because somebody referred me to a customer i don't want to send anybody else in the future once we do slow down if not minimize or eliminate giving estimates to the public i will probably just dedicate most of my time to the development side where i find the deals and i create the project on that property kind of so that's probably where my time's going to go but right now in terms of delegation those are the aspects that i delegate on daily basis so moving into the development side of things your main drive to do that was to help people or what what was the kind of the catalyst that made you say i need to go into this full time sooner than later uh earlier in my life i realized being a general contracting company alone was not going to pay my family's bills then i started to venture into other entrepreneurial things i got into a taxi business along with contracting never left i got into operating a del- um grocery store i tried a furniture uh, op- operation some of them got off the ground some of them didn't get off the ground some of them collapsed like the taxi business you were the owner of all those businesses mm-hmm. and um cuz the intention was always the same hey look you know let's throw some numbers at this let's say you need to make $5000 a month to pay your bills and let's say contracting is making you 2500 
at the moment. And you're not going to be, you can't get to $5,000 overnight. It needs time. Okay, so during that time, what do you do? Then, you know, you start thinking, okay, if I get into a grocery business who can generate me X many dollars more, we can get to that $5,000 number closer. That's where always been the intention is. Uh, some of the things backfired. Furniture operation never got on the ground, never got off the ground. It dug me into a deeper hole. Taxi business, I've been fortunate. I borrowed a lot of money against it and we settled the debt after the Uber came collapsed, collapsed. So I'm one of the few fortunate people. A lot of people lost money there. I feel really bad for those people. Um, and, you know, grocery store, we did okay. And then it started to go down. I couldn't, you need, it needed more time. I couldn't dedicate more time because I'm still running the, con, you know, contracting business. Then, uh, then you make a decision, say, all right, you know what? That's not going to work. Let's sell it. So we sold it almost as a wash. So thank God we got lucky on that. Um, and then development comes in, say, all right, it's hand in hand with the same industry and I like the fact that I will control the money at the top. Then, then it starts to shake, take shape further into your mind. All right, contracting into development. And along that time, a couple of projects came. I started to physically work on development projects. I, I started to meet investors. People like what I say. So I'm like, okay, there's a, there's a promise here. Now, along with that, I want to do a foundation to help people. And then I said, oh my God, not only will development feed the contracting company if i'm going to be a long-term landlord landlord it'll feed the prop property management company that i have that's not mentioned there and which is idle don't worry <laughs> it's waiting for the apartments to be built but and i said and it'll it'll feed this foundation that i want to start off i want to help people so that's why everything started to line up you know that term stars line up in your mind and it started to become clearer and clearer what i had to do so where did you learn everything you needed to know about development? I'm sure there's so many regulations and craziness you got to understand to really be able to do it effectively. And I'm sure setting up a project improperly could be years of just a horrible prison sentence, essentially. So, pain, pain. All my gray hairs on my head is... Yeah. <laughs> so, so where did you learn what you needed to, to move into that and how to set it all up properly? Looking back, uh, the divine is preparing you for this. Because now looking back, you can make that judgment. All right, you know what? You started in painting. You got into general contracting. 2014, you built a single home. You did renovations. All right, you're getting your foot through the door further and further and further and further in. And um, one of my oldest projects just got approvals. That took seven years. That's seven years of pain of not having enough money, not having going to the wrong civil engineers, getting taken advantage of, going to hard money lenders that take advantage of you. I mean, I'm going to write a book just on that. So it's ongoing. Do I know everything about development and codes? No. I lean heavily on my civil engineers. I uh, The one gift that I have that has nothing to do with learning, that probably a God gift is I have a vision that I see when I walk onto a property in a specific neighborhood, I see what needs to go there, where the buildings need to be, where the roads need to lay. And I usually do this on a piece of napkin <laughs> and hand it to my civil engineer. I go, here, this is what I see. And then they take that original idea and they actually put it to code. And they say, look, you can't do this, but we could do that. And it starts shape, taking shape and it kind of falls in there. So that's the only thing that's not learned. Everything else has been absolute gruesome, gruesome education. And it will continue to be. The codes change every year. Certain townships will allow certain things. The other ones will be totally against it. Number of parking spaces required per each unit. You know, some places couldn't care less. It, it, the idea is to work with the townships and find out what they're looking for and then try to, prov try to bring a project to the table that suits everybody's needs and whatever their concerns are. You'll be surprised. It's not the same in every single township. It's not. So what's like the process for that? Like if I wanted to be a developer and I walk into a town and I have an idea that, yeah. oh, it would be great to put an apartment building here. What's the process? Like, how do you begin? Uh, you have to check the zoning codes. Uh, that's all public information. Um, and then you have to negotiate a price. 
you, you buy it to buy, buy the to buy from... to buy the property from if it's on sale. If it's not on sale, you have to have your realtors reach out to the owners. Mm-hmm. They may be they may consider it. They may not consider it. It all depends on catching, especially if it's not on the market. It all depends on um, you know they may not even consider it. They may not need the money. They don't want to deal with it. Tall you know the bigger companies they usually. Uh, treat mistreat these people who are trying to sell lands and you know developers don't have a good reputation on the street for that reason you know they, they get pushed around and everything so you deal with those kind of issues but to you have to find out if you let's say you they're willing to sell then you have to really really do your math you know what kind I was of a about building to say, is there like an equation like okay oh yeah yeah i'll get the land for this much money the apartment will cost this much this much is probably going to come as extra expenses i'm not accounting for assume each unit will be rented for this much this will be maintenance costs like Everything what is that it's process? all exactly what you just said it's all math in order for the building to work when you're building brand new there is no cheap to do it to do it. code is code you have to build it to code don't ever make that mistake in development your building square footage code is if it's an elevator building, it's going to be this much per square feet. If it's this, it's going to be the, it's going to vary minuscule. Um, but it's all math. You have to say, all right, if I'm paying a million dollars for a property, and I'm going to put a you know eight million dollar apartment building in here, am I going to rent them? Okay, great. What's the rents in the area? What am I? You know, what's the maximum? Uh, rent I can charge for an efficient size unit. Not efficiency, efficient size unit. I'll give you an example. Um, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who has two apartment units he wanted to renovate in a specific neighborhood in North Philadelphia. I said, in this neighborhood, you don't need these big apartments. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, you should subdivide them into four units instead of two. Because in this area, 400 square foot one bedrooms is quite common. His eyes lit up. He goes, you mean to tell me? I said, not only that, look, I pulled up online and said, look, here's what you, here's what they're charging for, 400 square foot, one bedrooms. His jaw dropped. That's the kind of stuff you have to do. So that's a little bit of education, experience, but ultimately math. Ultimately math. You can renovate it for so much. You can do it so much. Everything has to come together. That You should do that before you buy the property because it may blow up in your hands. Can you get approvals from the township before you buy the property? Yes, uh, that's that's where things get a little complicated. How hungry is the seller? Are they willing to wait for you to do that? Mm. And then you as the developer have to f- have that math hold in your mind before you actually take action, say, okay, mathematically this checks out, it will make money. That has to be answered first. Then you negotiate the time before to buy it. Can you give me six months? Can you give me 18 months? I bought properties. I had 18 months of due diligence. There was too many environmental issues I had to sort through. But that's money you're spending out of pocket on a land you don't own. So, so um, be careful about that too. You really have to gauge, all right, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, this may cost me out of pocket. And if the deal is no good, that money is gone. So to be a developer, do you have to have a giant pile of cash sitting around to invest, or do you go and take loans? A combination of both. I don't have, I started off with not a lot of cash. So I banked on my vision. And I saw things on properties that were left over by other developers that either it wasn't worth for them to see, or maybe some of them saw, but to them it was too small. They left these lands, you know, scraps, around and I could raise enough money from my investor pool to put them you know to purchase them and with my monies and a combination of other people's second set of investors monies I was able to get plans approved so you had private investors investing in you in addition to bank loans yep this is where what you and I talking about earlier comes in are you do you have integrity do people trust you you build all of these things. So the, all the investors, especially the initial set of investors, were people who knew me as a general contractor. They knew me as a painter. They knew me for 20 years, 30 years. 30 years is a little too much. I moved the year 2003, so it's been 20 years. <laughs> but you understand the point. So if you're burning bridges on daily basis, you're shooting yourself in the foot. I'm the, right. I'm the example of what to do. Don't burn bridges. You don't know who's going to help you. You really don't. And you need 
a personal set of investors, right? Because the banks won't give you a hundred percent of no. the loan. No, they the, the most they'll lend you, and these days they won't on raw land because of today's economic conditions. But on a good day, they will lend you fifty percent of the purchase price. So you at least have to come up with fifty percent of the purchase price just to buy the land. But that comes with a caveat as well. Even if you can find a bank to do that, they'll say, okay, Asman, we'll give you 50% LTV loan to value on this property, but I want to be out in 12 months, 18 months the most. That's it. You're not going to sit on this land for years and years and years. I don't have time to wait for you. So I want my money. So either get the plans approved in 18 months or 12, most likely 12 months to 18 months. So let's say get the plans approved and let's convert this into a construction loan. But if you're running into troubles, I want my money. So it's always a high-stress scenario when you don't have your own money. That's the, the personal <laughs> investors? That's uh, who you're saying is saying that? The, ba that the, the bank. bank. The banks. Oh, the banks. Okay. The, the personal investors, you're at their mercy. My question to each and every single one of them is, what's your expectation in terms of timeline on this? If you're going to need your money back in six months from me, eh, this one's going to take longer than six months. But if we're at a different stage where plans are approved, we're breaking ground, I need cash flow, and people need to give me money for six months, where I know I can get their money back in six months, I'll take that six-month investment. So when you're looking at a property to buy for a development opportunity, is there a fear or worry of other developers trying to come in and outbid you? Like, is it how aggressive is the competition between developers? I'm too small still as a developer, so I don't feel that. I think the guys that you're describing, they're purchasing 200 acres and up they're no putting problem. 150 you know single homes and up i'm not there yet and also trying to concentrate on the lower end of the market the land purchase price matters a lot in order for the project to be profitable so that decision that i make alone is taking me into areas that the people you're describing are not interested in because the appraisals are not there. You know, they want to build 4,000 square foot houses and sell them for 4 million, 3 million. I'm not, that's not the market I'm going. I'm going 1,000 square foot starter homes. So that's taking me into other areas. So there's less competition there. So in that sense, I think I'm a little bit fortunate because I'm choosing that path. But once again, math is that much more crucial in that operation than the mistakes you make in four million dollar home market you should be you could you, it's much easier to survive those mistakes in my path i better be dead on because <laughs> the margins are <laughs> with with those smaller development projects is there a target timeline of where things go profitable like how long does it generally take do you have a set goal five ten twenty years like uh what from start to finish start to profitability uh start to profitability okay now in my business plan, where I'm building them myself, there's profitability built into construction budget because it's my contracting company. So my monthly needs will be taken care of for, um, by this project as we're building it. So that takes care of the immediate urgency. Since I'm going to be borrowing money from a bank on almost all of these jobs, the bank will get paid first. So... If it's a 10-unit, 12-unit, 15-unit development project, you're probably going to make your profits at the last two, last three units because the bank will pay themselves first. So you're building these houses, you're selling them, you're going to closings, and you're walking, you're walking away with nothing until the last couple. And that's the discipline. And if you don't do it that way, you don't get to build it. You know, or you're going to have to bring your own monies to do it, which and is a different story. What's the timeline to where the bank will be paid off? Uh, typical 12 months. That's not bad at all. Typical. Now with problems, 18 months. So I'm looking at 13 units in South Jersey. We're presenting next, this month actually. So from God willing, they'll approve. And I don't see why they shouldn't, but let's say they approve. It's about six months before I break ground. And I should finish 13 units in about eight months, nine months after that. Now, because, everything. because people are saying that affordable housing is so in demand, are you finding that these units are selling relatively quickly? Uh, yes, yes. And um, the challenge then becomes 
how do you protect the people that you really want to protect? You'll be surprised. Even in that margins, my realtor's telling me there isn't anything like that in New Jersey at the moment. And they're not interested in either anytime soon. And she goes, I'll just, just get me the approvals. Just let me know when I can market them. I'll sell them right away. My, my challenge is going to be, I'm trying to pull some people upwards into a house market rather than somebody who's coming with $50,000, $60,000 down payment on a $400,000 house. Do you see that's where the challenge is? Pulling them up from renter? From just class? barely, barely enough qualifying to put enough money, barely enough money to come to the closing table. Mm. I do want to spare some to those folks. I don't think I can legally do that. I'll find a way. <laughs> you understand who I'm trying to describe. They have just enough money put together. They borrowed from uncle, you know, uncle, nephew, niece. They, they put just enough money together to come to the closing table. They qualify. They got good enough credit. They, you know, they qualify for the mortgage. It's that kind of shortage. I'll find a way. Those are the people I kind of want to turn them into as well. Not just the people who already happen to have a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. um, so with the property management for those, do you have anything in, I know that hasn't really started yet because you're still kind of in the building, the earlier phases of development stuff. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in place for properties where it's rentals when you have bad, because in, in the lower priced things, I'm sure you're going to have a bit more issues with crazy tenants and um the possible I, I, damage to the property i have um enough developer friends that happen to be in affordable housing in general where they're they have section 8 tenants i don't think it's called section 8 anymore but just for the for this uh, podcast let's call it section 8 because i think everybody understands that um this is what they're telling me anybody who owns less than 50 units is complaining about the entire Section 8 program and experience. Anybody who owns more than 50 units, the higher the numbers are, everybody's very happy with the units and the tenants and the experience, I should say. Because ultimately, what I believe is them confirming, which is not many people are as bad as you think. It's only a few apples that destroy it for the, for the most. So the higher the numbers are, the the bad apples, let's call them, are in the minuscule. And then, yes, they, they do what they're going to do, but it's not going to rock your boat. It, they, that unit's renovation becomes a tax write-off at that level because the income is so much higher. But overall, it's beautiful to hear what you feel is what's reality because they have the real data. I just have a belief. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I know people who own 3,000 units and up. So there, to hear them say, no, I love affordable housing, you know, that's very promising. Very, very promising. That's something me and Jeremy have talked about a lot is like, we see new development all the time in this area, Chester County, Pennsylvania, and almost all of it's luxury apartments. And it's, you know, there's a whole class getting skipped out of where do you go if you you can't buy a huge expensive house or you don't want to spend 2500 a month for a one or two bedroom apartment. You get pushed around, my friend. That's what happens. I, after moving down in Philadelphia, I met two, three people that I remember that had to sell their houses in Brooklyn, which is where I was raised. They owned it outright. They made a lot of money on the sale. Don't get me wrong, but they had to sell because they couldn't afford to pay the yearly real estate taxes. And they owned the building outright for crying out loud. Hmm. So those are the fortunate ones. And then you know about the you know unfortunate ones. They get kicked around. They, they, they rent they can't afford. They got to move out further. They got to move out further. And you know what's happening now? It's going up into Reddings and Pottstowns. And all of a sudden, you know, 15 years ago, Pottstown, you're crazy. I'm not moving there. Now it's like, wait, it's only another 10-minute ride all of a sudden because that's a mathematical reality that's pushing you to do so. And by the way, Pottstown is not as cheap as what you think anymore. And that's the reason. So it's the first comers and then the second wave and then the third wave. And all of a sudden we got another Collegeville out there mm -hmm. and another Phoenixville out there. And then as that's going to happen, the first comer Pottstown folks from 15 years ago are going to get kicked out again further out. And you, you see the pattern? Mm -hmm. That bothers the heck out of me. Not... I think majority of the population in the United States are not luxury owning folks. Well, what's going to happen to those people? I care. I do. And I got to figure out a way to put a little dent into that problem. 
That raises another question for you. I know um, residential property taxes are very high in Chester County and Pennsylvania in general. Sections, sections. Um, yeah, in sections. But for commercial properties, if you own like a rental place, what is the property situation on taxes like for that? And does that go up? Every year? Is that something you have to factor into your investments? Uh, it does go up. It doesn't go up every year. Uh, if you're in King of Prussia area, you're lucky, both on the residential end and the commercial end, because the mall alone by itself pays a lot of real estate taxes to the township. And the township have to justify what they're charging. So in that scenario where there's this big Goliath in, you know, in the neighborhood paying a lot of the real estate taxes, your per unit real estate taxes are not horrendous it's fairly reasonable number one reason you know king of prussia has been booming the last 10 years and then there's areas that are un unexplainably expensive um and i don't know why they are maybe they need the money i guess that's the first thing that comes to mind but the higher the real estate taxes the more you're discouraging businesses to come the more you're discouraging developers to come in. So it's kind of like self-defeating from looking at it from a business point of view. So to answer your question about real estate taxes going up every year, they don't go up every year, but they do get assessed depending on the need here and there. And a township always has to justify why they need higher taxes. So don't forget that. They, they, they don't just get to raise them because they want them because there has to be a justification for for that. It's usually, you know, expenses going up every year, but whatever it is, that's why it hasn't, like I live in um, um, just outside Conchac in, in Lafayette Hill. My real estate taxes haven't gone up. I've been there 10 years and they've been the same number. Let me not wake up anybody in that township. <laughs> but I mean, you know, because they don't need it. If they need it, they'll come to us and they'll give us an explanation to why they need to raise it. So it's a little bit of a, um, a, a mixture to answer your question, there is really no clear path to why, other than they have to present public with an absolute need why they're doing it. They got to pay, you know, school bus drivers are striking or something, or who knows. Mm -hmm. But it's usually related to something like that. They're not evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. So, um, what kind of advice would you give to someone else who wants to start a contracting or management or development business? What do you think is some of the key things someone should know going into those businesses? Uh, natural advantages. They should, they should list what they want to do, where they're coming from. What's the natural advantage that you find yourself in? Was your father a contractor? Do you have a cousin and a nephew and a niece that's in a, working in, in the field that can help you with certain stuff? What's your natural advantage? Um, and what's your personal, you know, talents are you the salesperson are you good are you the worker b are you the visionary you got to recognize these things first and then you should build on that and then set your goals it's not easy nothing is easy but if you're the type that gives up quickly contracting isn't for you contracting is going to be painful gruesome and it will make you a lot of money and you just have to combine your vision your expectations your you have to recognize what your natural advantages are, what your talents are, what what can you do, what you cannot do. You have to delegate. You have to trust people. Oh, my God, it's a combination of many, many things. I love it. It's not perfect. As I said before, I, I don't own a number one contracting company. I don't think I ever will. But people trust us, and we keep on going back, and, you know, and we're in a comfortable place where we don't advertise. I I took down my website. I don't want to be found on on the internet. I I I because well, I people refer me to customers. That's good enough. I, I don't want to attract new business. I don't think I can handle it. That's a good place to be. But it took twenty years, though, guys. If you're listening, twenty years. Years of a lot of challenges, and you come through one by one by one by one, one by one. So, uh, what kind of plans do you have for the future of the business? Uh, I think it's settling into place. Uh which I mentioned, I think I'm looking into starting up my foundation next. I want to help people uh, with the foundation. And uh, the way I'm setting things up in my mind is if n I don't get any donations, I don't get any government help, I should make enough money for me to be able to fund the foundation by myself today and into the future. 
Once again, that's an advantage because you're not dependent on government funds to come in two and a half years after 250 red tapes and you know, you, I'm not dependent on that. So from a developer point of view, the development projects are becoming realities. Contracting company is shifting into full-fledged construction management, which is gearing up for everything that I want to do in development. It's lining up. Property management company is idle at the moment. I have a partner who's waiting on the sidelines, who owns his own property management company. And I said, look, leave that alone. Let me bring you my own buildings. Help me manage my own buildings. That's it. So it's a triangle of my own buildings uh, being managed by my own property management company who is going to hire my contracting company to manage the buildings, physically fix them if we have bad Apple tenants, so on and so forth. So it's it's getting there. So do you have any announcements or anything? Like if someone wants to get involved with the project, are you looking for investors still? or Always. <laughs> always. Uh, there's always a need. And there's always a place... Um, you know, they can reach out and then we'll just have a conversation, see where they are in life, what they're looking to do. I have an investor that said, Osman, I want you to teach me development. I, I'm investing with you, but I want you to teach me. I said, okay, no problem. So I'm inviting that person to come to township meetings, introducing him as, uh, you know, uh, an assistant to me and he's hands on. How does someone get in touch with you since you took your website down? Uh, that's the contracting website down. My okay. my development website is up. It's mayesproperties.com. Okay, M-A-Y-I-S. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to ask the same question. Okay. How do you get yeah. in contact? All right, well, that, that covers everything we wanted to talk about. Osman, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Stories from the Top is your guide to successful business development. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the Top is an Edge of Cinema production hosted by Matthew Skura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more or get in touch, visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast.